Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 5.44 a.m. Central Daylight Time. It is April Fool's Day. By the way, it's the 1st of April, 2021. Be careful on all social media today, people. Everything you see is probably going to be a lie. But not today's show. Right? Today's show is an interview that I did with Untapped Growth. That is at Untapped Growth on Twitter. If you haven't been following them, you need to be following them because Bitcoin is seeping into every aspect of our modern world. Okay, what I mean by that is simply that Bitcoin is more than just a payment system. It's more than a store of value. It's more than a medium of exchange. It's it it does other things. It enables people to do other things. One of the things that I'm the most interested in is agriculture, specifically regenerative agriculture, and that's where we come in today's show with Untapped Growth, who is releasing, or rather has released, the untappedgrowth.com website. Welcome to the movement, bro. So what is it? Well, we're gonna get into we're gonna get into it in the in the show. And this is a long one, guys. This is like well over an hour and a half of of interview, which is why I'm not gonna do anything else. But I do want to describe this website. Basically speaking, you can, it's a, it's a choose your own story. You can choose go to untappedgrowth.com and check it out. But you can either be an investor, or you can decide to be the homestead rancher. Right? And this is all about grazing cattle, either on your own land, leased land. Untapped is set it up to where there's contracts and, and structure behind how to get into regenerative agriculture, either as an investor or a homestead rancher, Okay, depending on what path you want to pick. But what he's doing is he's... It's when he described it to me, it was almost as if he took a play, he took a page from Michael Saylor's playbook and basically just laid everything out for you so that you know what to do, you know where to go, you know what a con this, you know, a cattle contract looks like, you know, you know things. Okay. So that's the, the launch of his website, which I think it went live last night. Uh, is this is not to be missed. If you have been thinking that you want to get out of the city, but you don't know what the hell to do, this is one of the things that you can do. And regenerative agriculture, it seeks to do a couple of things. One is make a living, right? And make a living that's, you know, not an aerospace engineer that's having to, you know, pretty much live their entire life in Clear Lake, Texas, or something like that around the Houston area being in a building and wearing a suit and tie. And if, if you're getting bored with, with the way modern life is, 
you might want to look into regenerative agriculture, getting back out on the land with your family, away from the large cities, and start living life essentially the way I think hum- humans were meant to live life. We've lied to ourselves for so long. We have created such an unfun environment in this existence where you have to worry about doing your taxes because that shit's coming up, right? You have to worry about, oh, making bills and, and getting the job and go, going to the school to, so that you can go get a job. Of course, that's not true. Any, you, know, it's, you never went to college to actually go get a job. But I think humans are coming to this nexus point where a lot of humans are just, they're just done. But we've, we've blocked off all these avenues to go do something else and not starve to death. You know, it's feeling trapped. This is one way out. The regenerative agriculture movement is one of the most important movements I've ever seen because it seeks to heal two things at once. The human condition, as well as the soil that we depend on. Because I got to tell you, man, unless you're drilling for it or strip mining it, every single piece of wealth that has occurred on this planet is because there's six inches of topsoil and the fact that it rains. It has made all the wealth. We have been destroying the soil in modern conventional commodity style agriculture for decades. This regenerative agriculture movement heals that soil and makes it better and uses animals to do it. So without further ado, uh, we're just going to pick it up with untapped like, growth to the expense of like a real deeper integration of heart into being in a way that's not good for the human psyche. Right. Right. Like, like we, like Paul on the call, we talked a lot about um, like this whole anti-meat agenda of like killing animals is cruel, uh-huh. but like real humans, we understand like, like, uh, like unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it'll bear no fruit. Uh-huh. And, um, so, like, all life flows from death. Like, love's the same way, right? I mean, uh-huh. no kid love than this, and a man lays down his life for another. I mean, that's brotherhood. That's family. That's what we do for our children and our wives. Like, that's part of being human, right? Right. And part of that respect for life itself, to me, is integrated in the butchering of animals. Now, I've never done it. I expect it to be very profound for me when I do, because, like, this is how I feel about things. But, like... right. Their death is the gift that needs to be honored because they're giving their life so that I may live. Like, that's, that's a privilege that we should not take for granted, that right. we get that role as stewards over creation like that. Yeah. Like, we need to take that seriously and live worthy of that gift, even the gift of the life of the animal itself. Well, it's also the gift of the animal's action, not, you know, through the, through the life of the animal comes the ability for that animal to act upon its environment. But remember what we were talking about with the whole gut thing and you're yep. eating the, you're literally eating the information that is around you so that your body knows its place, you know, that it, that it makes a, it, it has a sensible grounding in the climate, the environment, the temperature, the humidity, everything about what's going on is your body's literally a sensor for, you know, and if you confuse that sensor by giving it stuff from something 500 miles away. Okay. So what I'm thinking is that 
as bovines go through and they mow the grass, as chickens go through and they pick up insects and any seed heads that they find that is not imported. And I mean, I, I buy bags of seed at Tractor Supply. I mean, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. I guarantee you that shit is not from here. But in, in an ideal situation, I'd be growing millet that is a land race somewhere like, you know, on an acre or whatever. And, you know, millet, maybe some corn, whatever. And those plants pick up the, the mineral quotient that's on the land right there. And then the chickens eat that. And they process that information in a primary way. Well, actually, the plants process the information in a primary way. Then the chickens reprocess the same information in a secondary way. And then we kill the chicken. And then that meat, in a tertiary fashion, informs us of everything from what's under the earth to what's over the earth and to where we are. Because I really believe that the gut is more than it's like, all that neurology, you don't need all that neurology in your gut. It's not firing, it's not firing muscles. Why is it there? And one of the first things that I learned as a biologist was that life is not capricious. It doesn't just do shit. You know, it's not like, I mean, it, it, it does do shit insofar as it'll throw mutations just as a way to make sure that if something happens, you got a backup plan insofar as, you know, you got a uh, offspring that, that has webbed feet and the creature itself isn't supposed to have webbed feet and yet a flood comes, guess who survives to pass on its genes, right? So it's capricious sort of that way, but it's just building in redundancy and I don't kind of include that as capriciousness. So there's a reason that neurology is in the gut. I don't know why, but it's becoming more and more evident as I read more and more that the people in academic level scientific community are starting to really start wondering why is it so neurolated? Because you don't need near that much neurology down there. So something's going on. And I get the feeling that we, I think food allergies and all this shit is a direct response from eating stuff that is not where you live. And I wouldn't say, and I wouldn't ever tell anybody, okay, you got to stop going to the grocery store and you have, you have to eat the food and, and I, I'm going to buy decree. Okay. Well, fuck you. I, you know, I don't, I don't need that shit, but at least some level of awareness and education that says you might want to stop and just start thinking about it. You don't have to stop doing what you're doing, but you maybe, it, you know, it's time to start thinking about changing shit and we're in the middle of a sea change. There is nothing to stop this now. I mean, there was a tweet yesterday that said, Bitcoin already won. You're just figuring it out, you stupid motherfucker. <laughs> and I'm like, it's not the only thing that's already won. I, you yep. know, I don't know, but I, that's why, I'm, that's why I'm so damn hopeful all the time. You know, it's yep. like somehow or another, I, like there's a thing in the back of my mind that says, you should be shit all scared. And I'm like, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm just, I'm not. Yep. Yeah, I think about it too, because it's almost like it's a two-way street where the gut speaks to the brain, but the brain also speaks to the gut because you got the web of all this like microbiome going on down inside of you too, uh-huh. and your being and your emotions that you cultivate inside of yourself also feed into what bacteria and things grow in your gut. 
Right. Just like the, what the byproducts the bacteria produce affect your emotions, it's not a one-way dynamic. Like, um, like I had a buddy who had a pretty serious mold exposure, and I, I went through a similar experience. And we, we kind of had this joke about, like, mold creates this psyche that it's like a sense of impending doom when you actually have living mold trying to impregnate your body. Right. Um, it's just like the psychological effect of its biotoxins. Now, I believe that that sense of impending doom, when you channel that as an emotion, it mm -hmm. gives the mold a stronger foothold on your biology. Part of winning the battle against a mold infection is literally doing meditative type work where you counteract that sense of impending doom the mold's putting on your biology mm -hmm. and you impregnate your cells with hope through will. And that in itself helps strip the infection from your body. I mean, one of my buddies, like he literally, like his doctor was like, you should be dead. I don't know why it hasn't killed you yet. He's like, because I have a will and I know how to use it. I get the battle. Like biologically, looking at all the tests, this should have killed me, but I ain't letting it win. I ain't done yet. <laughs> was this a black was this a black mold thing? Yeah. Yeah. That that shit is that shit could be terrible, man. So what aspergillus or something, I think. Can't I don't remember, remember in particular. I can't he actually had it where it's truly growing in his sinuses. You could take it straight from his sinuses and it would like grow on a petri dish. Yeah. My wife went before she was my wife, we were dating. She was working at a laboratory and it was a it was a my uh it was a mycology lab and they were specifically studying black mold and the safety measures that they had in place. She's like, this, this place was like insane. It was, it was just, they were like, everybody was really tremendously careful, not only with their own shit, but with other people's shit. Like, you know, they were constantly going, you're, you're doing that wrong. You're doing that wrong. And you know, it's like, we're not trying to get on you, but this shit can kill. And it can kill you and you fucking up can kill me. And that's not going to happen in this lab. And she worked there for a year and she's like, some of the shit she saw, it was, th that's when I was like, I took black mold very seriously after that. Uh, Cause at first I, I didn't know enough about it. And I was like, it's just mold. And she's like, once I met her and started hanging out with her, she's like, no, nah, man, you don't want to have any part of this. It, it's like the, the toxins that it throws off is, is a neurotoxin and it'll just mess your ass up straight as day. It's bad. It's yeah. real bad. Like that, that kind of, I was having a thought yesterday. I actually fed my cows alfalfa that the horse farm had just trashed. They'd left it in one of the old run-ins on the concrete floor. Uh -huh. And so it concrete's porous, right? It soaked up all the water from the ground. And so the hay practically rotted. Like it was just worthless hay as far as the horse people are concerned. Right. But my cows actually broke into one of their run-ins, ate all their junk hay. Uh -huh. But like, um, like I did not, I say broke in. I did not fence them out of it because I didn't think they'd do any harm. Yeah. And uh, I didn't actually even think they'd eat it. They broke into it and they ate all that shit. Oh, and God. they freaking loved it. Like they went yeah. ham for it. Like almost like they do for the fermented food I feed them. That's like a fermented haylage. Uh-huh. They didn't eat all of it. They picked through it. Right. But it had a lot of like fungus and stuff in it too. Yeah. And I'm like looking at these cows like maybe they just know. Maybe they know that some of this is good for them. Because I watched them sniff it. They'd lick it. They'd push them out of the way. Like I, I wonder if the like the low level of some of the infection stuff in it, they like training their immune system type thing. Mm -hmm. And like. So I like, I like, was like, fuck it. So I was like, what other bad hay do you guys got? And I went and collected it all and fed it to him yesterday. <laughs> how, much did you get, how much did you get um, off him? Like six, eight bales so far that I found. Like, like just scattered around in the run-ins. 
square bales or roll bales? Yeah, little little square bales. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Well, like a day's worth of food, right? But I couldn't help but think, like, I wonder if this is, like, in a sense, is going to make these cows code the information for more environmental resilience to decay-type substances. I can't imagine. I mean, it, you know, what? well, first of all, whatever doesn't kill them is definitely going to inform them in a better way. I mean, it's like this is sort of the, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. In this particular case, I think we're talking about a situation where what, whatever doesn't kill you gives you information. And I was like, I, I, I'm starting to see, I'm starting to see all this stuff is as almost pure information, you know, because essentially, you know, like, I don't know, like a molecule of methane, CH4, you know, one carbon, four hydrogen, and when you get down to the base layer of each of those particular atoms, you're talking about pure energy. So we got energy that's formed up into a way that set up at, one, at some scale, it turns into like a substance that has these properties and then they start connected together and then they form, you know, mega, you know, mega properties. And then they form together and it, like, again, it's, it's fractal stuff and it's like, but energy in a pattern by definition is information. Mm -hmm. I can't get away from this idea. I, I mean, I, it has never, once I, once I finally started, once I, once I thought about it the first time, it, it never left me and it, and it probably never will not until the day I die. Cause I, I'm like, I'm starting to become a firm believer that our eyes have been closed to a great many things for a, great amount of time and we're in yeah, they called it like the what the enlightenment was also called the awakening mm -hmm. i think i think we're in a reawakening at this point and I, I don't know exactly when it was we went to sleep i don't maybe it was i'm trying to think when that when that could have been when people were just getting stupid and i'm i'm thinking it kind of co you know coalesces around the late 1800s like you know 1890s getting into 19 especially 1913 the formation of the fed what was it all of three years four years later we were in world war one and it's been a century of war you know ever it's just nothing but war ever since and i yep. tried you know like my sister gets gets bitcoin now but she didn't and at the time that she didn't i just like looked at her and i go the fed was formed in 1913 how long did it take us to go to war She's like, it doesn't have anything to do with it. And I'm like, bullshit. It has everything to do with it. It's like, and, and I'm like, Robin, we have never left that war. And it's like, that war has never ended. It's like, they told us it ended, but it's never ended. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't make financial sense for these guys. Anyway, so, well, on your operation, how many acres are, like, are you managing anyway? On this little farm I'm leasing, we've got, 28 acres of pasture. Um, I've got probably about 30-ish that I've got like a rule set that I'm managing for wildlife rather than grazing maximization of forage. Uh -huh. So I'm getting the cows to come through and clean up like the forage so it doesn't like shade itself out during the growing seasons. Right. And then I leave it with like t trying to time it so the forage is at peak nutrition capacity during deer kind of breeding and calving seasons. Yeah. Um, kind of also trying to benefit some of the local bird wildlife and stuff as well um and then i've got probably about 50 acres just of just scrub woods i'm gonna eventually convert over to silvo pasture you're gonna clear that out with pigs first 
Nah, I'm gonna yeah. go in with a chainsaw and just thin up trees and then just throw the cows in. These cows are like park goat. It won't bother <laughs> them at all. <laughs> nice man, nice. So, how long you been? How long have you been doing this operation? Started in October. Oh, so not long. Mm-mm. Not long Could at all. Been about it for a long time, but just this opportunity with the cheap land lease kind of came to fruition about a year and a half ago. It took a little while to get it going. Yeah, I'm leasing all that land for a buck a year. What a, a dollar? Yes, a dollar. <laughs> God dang it! <laughs> That's amazing, man. A dollar buck a year, man. So um, the, benefit, the mutually beneficial agreement here is it's a farm for recreational horsemanship. And they're a bunch of old people that like are into natural stuff. And with recreational horses, you do not get your land account as agriculture. Uh-huh. So she's paying residential tax rates on 160 acres. Oh. They have like 12 horses with all these old people and they have to mow all this land with tractors. And it's just a pain in the ass. Yeah. So now I'm coming in, it counts as agriculture again. So she's got almost 10 grand less McCary cost on her property per year. She's got less work. She doesn't have to spend all the fuel mowing, doesn't have to do the mowing or pay somebody else to do the mowing. And now her soil and whole property is being improved by me and she's happy as a clam. Yeah. So like, it's almost like she should be paying me. I mean, like she's just as happy as could be about it. Yeah. That heard that same story from Greg Judy. Yep. Uh, you know, and it's like, you know, you know who he is. So, uh, yeah, he does. He's like, sort, I think he's sort of like the progenitor of this entire, you know, this model of, of leasing and then running because he gets, he pays for the lease and then he gets paid on, he gets paid more money to actually graze somebody else's cattle. And, you know, it's, it's an amazing situation. And there was this one story that he told at Permaculture Voices 3 in San Diego. And he said, and he's told it before, but I heard it first from in, at PV3. And he said, he had leased a, a whole bunch of land and uh, the, uh, he was running cattle over it. You know, he was doing his thing. He'd set out these, you know, electro fencing and was doing rotational grazing and all that. And uh, about a year later, I think it was about a year later, um, the owner came up to him and he said, or went to his house and said, Greg, I need to see the contract, our contract. And uh, Greg said, okay. And he just gave him the, gave him the contract and the dude ripped it up in front of him. And he said, and, and Greg was, he was said that he was really shocked. He's like, oh shit, I guess he's going to kick me off his land. And uh, Greg asked him, he said, is this the end? What did I do? And he said, no, 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 no. You have a lifelong lease now. He's like, why? Because it was supposed to be for like five years. And he's like, you're here for as, as, as long as you want or until, until the day you die. He's like, we're writing a new contract. The day I die, my children are not allowed to kick you off this land. And he asked why. And he goes, look what you've done to the place. He turned a blown out hayfield in like two years and all of a sudden it was put back to pasture for doing nothing but managing cattle, not just putting the cattle on the ground and just walking away and then, you know, taking them to a feed lot and doing the way that we, the way that we normally do at the end of the season. He intensely, I hate the word intensive because it it's, makes it sound like you have to be there watching the cows all the time and you can't do anything else. And it's like, no, that's not intensive management at all. Intensive just means that you're very focused on how long have the cows been in that plot, in that particular paddock, two days, let's go check it out. Look at the grass, see if they need to be moved. 
if the answer is no, leave one more day. If the answer is yes, take down the, you know, take down a part of the fence, move into the new paddock, put the fence in behind them, walk away, go play a video Easy. game. Yeah. And then, and because of that, and this is like, I'm reading, I was telling you in, in the uh, chat that I was read, started reading Alan Savory's Holistic Management Third Edition. Um, and I started reading it two days ago and I'm, I'm already like blown away. And I had to build up to this book, by the way. And I read a lot of books that like I went the way that I built up to this particular book because it's like 550 pages. Yeah, this thing is a tome written by one of the most brilliant people in this field that there will ever be. And I'm like, I, I got to work up to this. So I went to, went to Amazon and saw what other people bought when they were looking at that book and started going from there. And when I've read, you had mentioned, and I can't remember the name of the book, but you had asked me if I had read it. I'm like, no, it was like another book about grazing and soil management. And I read that thing and finished it a couple of days ago. And it's, it's definitely well worth it. But after I finished that one, I'm like, dude, I'm ready. And I read the first chapter of Alan Savory's book and I'm like, I'm all in because his holistic management can be applied to cattle and soil health and ecosystems and all that. But it's just as applicable to put it into the context of running a computer game company in the exact same way. It translates from soil to office to entrepreneurship to managing teams of people to it could probably even be used to manage teams of robots when we get some kind of interconnected mesh ai it would not surprise me in the least and it's you know that's what do what it's a good heuristic it, it is and like i said i'm i'm reading this thing last night i can't put it down I read until like, it was damn near one o'clock in the morning before I got, got to bed. And then I had to wake up at five, you know, to do the, do the morning podcast. And I was like, like, this book's going to kill me. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it, it lays out a lot of stuff about how to think about what management actually looks like. You know, what is it, what questions are you asking? You know, and, and what goals do you have in mind? And I'm like, it, it seems it actually starts making these problems easier to think about. Like, oh, I got to go, you know, like somebody who wants to do this and I'm guilty of it too, where I'm like, would I be able to, you know, would I be able to actually, you know, do this? Because I'm looking at the, at the thing is all the separate things that has to happen without, and which is a, the holistic management, you're supposed to look at the whole. Mm -hmm. But it's also like allows you to say, okay, we'll start whipping out the each individual problem by itself and get to the whole. And by the time that you get to the whole, every part of management is already under 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 control. It's not not under control, but understood. That's that's the it's point. You, yeah, you can't control everything, but you can damn near understand almost anything. And if you can understand it, you got a hell of a lot better chance of recovering when shit goes wrong. Mm -hmm. So have you noticed soil changes already? Um, I mean, I got some huge pasture benefits just from doing some intentionally timed mowings before the cows got there. Right. I mean, that was a huge plus. 
I've had the cows on the land since October. So this is going to be my first growing season after having any like grazing pressure with some manuring on some of these sections of the property. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm already getting some really good like uh, pasture growth in some of the winter areas I trampled. I didn't put any seed down minus the hay I fed, just let the cows trample to like activate whatever's in the soil bank. Yeah. And then fed a bunch of that hay of the max Q I wanted to come in. And that stuff's coming in like crazy. I mean, a little bit of rain, a little bit of sunshine, it's already looking pretty good. Yeah. So we'll see like after the first season or two, how well it's doing. So at the end of like, so what's your cycle length? And by cycle length, I mean, from the time that you, you started in October, how to, how to put this with that, put this politely, when do you get paid and how? Yep. So my first calf is not going to be born until almost a year after I got these cows, right? Okay. He got gestation period of like eight months. These Pawnee Woods are slow finishing, um, which is from an information coding standpoint, like we talked about, it's a good thing. More time mm -hmm. to gather information, right? Um, they take about 30 months to feed out for butchering. So my payback period on these cows from like October out, it's almost four years. Okay. But from a business standpoint, I'm trying to account for this in animal wealth as a long time preference investment rather than just cash flows. And for something where I'm putting in five to six hours a week, it's not a bad investment for increasing animal wealth over those kind of time frames for me. The payback period is not really what I'm taking like as my main kind of focus here, if that makes sense. Oh, it, it absolutely does make sense. But I know that there's, there's going to be people out there that want to do this and they're going to want to figure out a way to make it, you know, make it a living. And I think where we're at right now in, in agriculture is that it's, it's been so far removed from just regular people that we can't even really wrap our minds around, well, how the hell does, how the hell do you make a living? Cause we, we know what commodity farming looks like and we have a damn good idea of what the payout is on that. You either get a good crop, a moderate crop, and you get paid at the silo after you harvest covers all of your fuel, all of your labor. And if it's a bumper crop, you got a shit ton of money left over, but you're still exporting all of the fertility off your field. So you've got a decline. That's just, you're, you're just going to hit it. I don't know when, but there's going to be a carrying capacity at which the chemistry set of a commodity farm, you can't put any more inputs into it and it's just going to fall off the cliff. But for right now, we, we, I don't think we've hit that yet, but I think we're getting real close. So, you know, I think that the idea here is how to come up with like a plan and Greg Judy has a good one, but for like Bitcoiners and people that are in Austrian economics and stuff like that, is there an adjustment that could be made that people can go do this, do you think? Or is it always going to be a situation where you best have best better have a day job or just don't do it? I mean, is it just, is it a trap? Is it, you know, what do you think about that? Okay. So from like the big crop producers, I, I sent you the thing with advanced and eco. Uh -huh. If you think about plants, soil and plants, the two way street, the plant, the soil feeds the plants. We've always kind of thought about that and know that, but the plants also feed the soil, which is what advanced and eco is getting into, right? How do we use foliar sprays to maximize plant health so they're photosynthesizing at full capacity? 
to put extra dates into the soil to capture carbon from the air to build soil just while they're growing, right? Mm -hmm. um, so they're actually getting these huge crop productions where they're building soil year in and year out with their crop rotations, where their plants are higher quality, they're, they're better nutrition, they last for longer, higher yields on their crops, lower input costs, and the soil's getting better every year, year in and year out. So like even crop producers, these problems are being solved. My grazing stuff, what I'm trying to do is help scale people from zero to actually do it, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I'm doing is I'm exploiting mutually beneficial incentives and competitive advantages in the marketplace where doing the grazing like this, it's really low effort as far as time per week. I mean, five, six, seven hours a week. So easy, easy part-time job. Mm -hmm. Okay, that labor's fixed. It doesn't matter whether it's 20 cows or 200 cows. It's still the same amount of time. So the larger your scale, the more money you make. Okay, if I can get a low time preference rancher who's willing just to do that as a part-time job for the sake of being ranching and kind of like building animal wealth and all that over time mm -hmm. and have a low time preference investor who's willing to buy the herd just for the sake of having animals on a long time frame as well, now you're off the ground and running. Okay. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the numbers, I mean, each of these cows is yielding about a thousand dollars of income a year once you're up and go because the carry cost is so low. So if you've got one guy five to six hours a week, if you can get his herd up to 200, 250 head, that farm's spitting off 200 to 250 grand a year. Not bad. No. Okay. So, but that's a part time job. That's five, six hours a week. Right. If you have him as a manager, he wants to do this full time. He could drive an hour or two around to different properties owned by different land trusts to run multiple herds. He could right. run five, six, seven different farms at one time. Right. So this would be like a model, like, like a property manager. Cause I yep. don't like, you know, there's a couple of, you know, my family, when my dad died, we had to uh, dissolve. Well, not, we didn't dissolve any of the companies, but we basically had to figure out where to put extra cash and stuff like that. And it ended up going into a couple of condos in uh, Santa Fe and, uh, and there's another property in Colorado. And uh, we rent these things out, but I don't rent them out. I hired a guy to do that. And this almost sounds like it's the same management model. It would go back to Alan Savory's holistic management. It's like, what's the goal? I want it, you know, I want this property to be profitable, you know, and, and then find somebody that can actually make that happen because there has to be hands on the ground. And I'm not in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Although I, I rather like Santa Fe. I don't want to live there, <laughs> but I mean, it's a beautiful place. I, I, I dig it. I will never live there though. It just, I, I, I might consider living outside of it, but if I was going to live that close, I would just go to Southwestern Colorado where I'm, where I feel more at home. But mm -hmm. you know, given all that, um, totally lost my train of thought, man, because I get it. I get into these discussions about regen ag and, and I just lose my mind. Um, can let's. So, let's, so run it, run it as an income. Like how can you do agriculture in a way that provides like careers for people? Yeah. So if you have that farm manager running all those properties, I mean, you could easily spit off a mill, mill and a half for that one ranch manager. If you have enough land and animal capital. Yeah. Doing a low input, like low lease cost, low, like easy, rough, rugged animal type system like we're doing. Right. So totally possible. But what we're leveraging with this decentralized grazing network 
is people that can do this as a part-time gig who have like either other careers or remote work and are willing to do this on a long time preference of just working until they get animal yield. You're right. working for animal yield rather than USD salary. Yeah. So now when it comes time for, when it comes time for harvest, because cows on grass is about 18 months to two years, whereas in a CAFO uh, confined animal feeding operation, it's about one year, right? So more or less, at least that's, that's the numbers that I hear from the people around my neck of the woods, which is the panhandle of Texas. And it's a pretty brittle environment and because it's dry, you know, and stuff like that. So, so the thing is, is that if you can eat that first year, then it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be too, I don't think it would be too much of a management problem to have like a one-year-old herd and a two-year-old herd and running those together on a single ranch, but making sure that they're separated or somehow identifiable. And if they aren't identifiable and you have to run it, or if they are identifiable and you can run them all at once and then call them out like at the end, then they can just go into a paddock altogether. But if you can't, then two separate paddocks and they never end up on the same paddock in the same year, unless your grass growth is really intensive and you have to go regraze in the same season. But what, what I'm getting at is that if you can eat that first year, then you can just stagger your herds. I mean, is that? Yeah. Okay. Bingo. Okay. Cause that's what I was thinking. I mean, you, can like, even, you can even start staggered if you wanted to have some young like yearling steers and stuff thrown in the herd. I didn't because I put all our up from capital into heifers, taking the long time preference view. Right. That, um, so what was, so you're talking about stalkers, right? Like stocking cattle, you, you stock the cattle in with, I've heard it termed as uh, stalkers, like, you, like stock cattle. And yeah, then so there's... I'm doing a cow-calf operation where I got okay. the bull and the females raising them off the jump. Okay. I've considered selling yearlings to stocking operations. That's part of the reason Poof and I, Bitcoin and Cows, are talking about doing a hybrid cattle line, kind of we're calling the Bitcoin beef breed. Right. Because um, if we cross it with something that's correct first principles, good on just forage, low input type breed, but something that pulls the, her the horns off the F1 generation, now you can actually sell that back into the feedlot industry or the stocker industry and actually get pretty good prices for them versus these heritage breeds. They don't, they don't like the horns. Really? Okay. So you can actually make good money doing that as well. Cause like a lot of our animal, like the CAFO industry or just a lot of just modern grazing in general, ranching in general, it's all about like yield per animal which is just the wrong number. We got right. these EPDs and like the growth rate per day and all this kind of stuff, but it's just the wrong, it's, it's efficiency solved for the wrong parameter. Yeah. What really matters is meat produced per acre. And that's not what we talk about. No. Like these old heritage breeds that finish slower, my meat produced per acre, my efficiency for food input turned into meat is incredible. It yeah. blows all these people out of the water, but it's just slower. Yeah. It's just a matter of like, are you willing to take a long time frame view and just wait a little while for those steers to grow up? Yeah. And so this actually brings me to the question of when, when it comes, when it does come time to harvest, what do you do? I mean, I mean, are you going to kill them on site and, and do the butchering yourself? And is that your plan or? So currently, like the whole highly regulated butchering industry is part of the problem, Right. right. 
Definitely. All the incentives are designed to benefit the big producers and the producers that are raising these kinds of meat that are the problem, these kinds of animal genetics that are the problem. Um, Wyoming and Thomas Massey and um, Caitlin Long are working on it over there, but those laws haven't gone across the country yet. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're doing, which is kind of on the edge of legality, I'm selling them as live animals, and we're having the people come out and butcher them themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, where I have a buddy who's a head butcher at like a local place, and he'll like walk them through the butchering. <laughs> um, it's more like libertarian type processing. We right. can get away with it right now. We're a small farm. As this uh-huh. whole thing scales, that's part of why we're looking at the hybrid cattle line because then we can just sell into the stocker industry versus right. have to go direct to market and have to butcher so many animals. So it right. allows you to scale the numbers on the operation in a better way. You don't even have to keep them to age them on your own property. You can sell them as yearlings to kind of increase your turnover speed. Right. Because right. we can so, get them finishing faster as a hybrid too. So if you weren't doing that, if you, if you weren't quote unquote libertarian meat processing issue um, and you, and you had to find another way, like you had actually had to take them, uh, you'd end up having to take them to USDA uh, uh, inspected. How far away is the, like if, have you looked to see how far away yours is your nearest USDA inspected one is? I've not, I bet that's super far. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking is that, and that's one of the things that makes it damn near impossible here in Eastern Virginia. Yeah. And there's, there's, you know, a lot of, a lot of talk about, you know, a USDA inspected and certified mobile kill floor and, but, you know, and, and Abbott, well, an abattoir is, you know, basically what we're talking about is where you kill the animal and then, and then process the whole damn thing and done on a mobile scale. And nobody, nobody has done one yet that I know of. Have you heard of anything like that? I've heard of people doing it. I don't know if anybody's being successful. I think a few are. Uh-huh. You still have the whole legislation issue of like they have a really hard time getting the operations going. The upfront cost to check on the boxes is so high. It's just okay. almost not worth the upfront capital. Okay. So that's something. Which is why everything's just consolidating around these giant meat processors. It's just another regulatory issue. Yeah. And again, that's that centralization issue is going to kill us all. You know? Yep. I, whether through whether through poison or just choking out somebody who can't they can't go ranch because of the regulations so they have to go find the job that they that is the soul-sucking job which makes everybody depressed and then it's just a giant feedback loop and what we what we've done to the world is is fucking maniacal man it's just it's and extricating us ourselves from this uh i, I I hope I'm alive to see it. That's all I can say. I really do. I hope I'm alive to see this shit. Yeah, I love uh, how Joel Skeleton says it. Like, everything I want to do is illegal. Yeah. Have you, have you, read, have you read that book by him where he talks about all this? No. So he I tried w- to set up all the props processing the chickens and was working uh-huh. directly with the USDA regulator guys. Uh-huh. And they had all these inane things he made them do. He was doing an outdoor processing facility. The uh-huh. further book, you have to have a door. He's like, guys, there's no wall. So like, well, you have to have a door anyway with the screen mesh of these sizes. So he put a wall on his outdoor processor or a door on his outdoor processor when he has no walls. And then like, they just chased him down a thousand different rabbit trails, you know? And like, eventually he was like, screw this. So he sent off his meat processed his way to have tested for uh-huh. salmonella and different contaminants. Uh-huh. And then he sent off meat that was like as clean and fresh of meat as he could get from a processor that was doing it the USDA way. 
Yeah. And his was like, it had like one or two parts per million of salmonella or whatever on it, like barely even testable, right? Right. Versus others had hundreds or thousands of percent more salmonella than his had following their rules. He's like, look, mine's cleaner. Can't we just do it my way? They're like, no, <laughs> you got to do it the dirty way. It's like, but, but, but like, aren't we supposed to be solving for cleanness? Like, no, no, that's not what we're solving for. Yeah, and for anybody who doesn't know, Joel Salatin is the head of Polyface Farms, and if you haven't checked out Polyface Farms, that's that is that place is a thing of beauty, man. And he out is he out in Virginia or is it West Virginia? He's in Virginia, Western Virginia. Okay, okay, yeah. So Joel, do, do you want to talk? I mean, you, you've got a pro, like a full blown project going on right now. You want to outline that, or do you want to save it for later, or? What do you so want to if do? we want to actually do the record, um, can I snag a bathroom break and we'll go right back and dive in? Yeah, absolutely, man. We could definitely figure this one out. I'll, I'll just have to go through it and, and hopefully find all the breaks and, and catches and stuff. But <laughs> yeah, just like take it, take me through the, take me through your deal, man. Okay. So what I'm doing is we're doing a decentralized grazing co-op. We're matchmaking ranchers with investors that have mutually aligned incentives and the ability to take a long time preference view to create something from nothing. Okay. Um, what I'd love to cover most with you is the story of just like how I got here and how this came to be versus focus so much on kind of the inner workings of mm -hmm. the operation itself. Okay. Um, I'm going to be on with Marty in two weeks. I'm okay. thinking I'll give his guys the whole like, feel the spiel on the why okay but um, I, I like using your podcast for kind of the personal side of it okay if you're cool with that uh, absolutely man so we were talking earlier before we started this part of the recording um i got into this world through essentially health issues where when i went to college 2009 um i lost about 20 pounds in two weeks never got officially tested but i'm pretty confident it was Crohn's disease um which sent me down the whole rabbit hole of learning about like alternative health, holistic health, which inevitably leads you all the way down to like, why is our food broken? Why is our soil broken? Right. Which started a lifelong passion at this point for being into regenerative agriculture and eventually mob grazing and cattle and everything. Right. Well, I've been dreaming about doing this stuff for a long, long, long time. Um, part of actually how I found Bitcoin was through trying to build self-sovereign communities that were kind of resilient as the world's getting quite crazier. I mean, building small businesses that work together to kind of help train young men how to be leaders in their communities all the way through, like how do we have fairly controlled supply chains where like we won't be disrupted as the world gets more chaotic. And this is before I found Bitcoin went down the rabbit hole. I was looking like, okay, we need this, we need sustainable food chains. We need sustainable energy. Um, and, but we also need the ability to do commerce among all these different communities we're building in a way that's censorship resistant. So I was like, okay, well, I got to solve this problem, <laughs> kind of Citadel building, right? Before I even knew Citadels was a thing. And I, like you do with any project where you have a problem that needs solving, you go do your research. Maybe somebody else is already working on this and I can partner with them. Lo and behold, there's fucking Bitcoin. <laughs> like, not only do I not have to solve this problem, this thing's been multiple like decades of iteration of like Sabo and eCash or eGold and all these different things, right? All the way to what Bitcoin is today that has been in existence for 
decade of people working with making it what it is, right? Just right. freaking incredible. Um, so <laughs> I like I would sit at old building, and that's how I found Bitcoin. And it always a part of that was kind of food supply stuff. So fast forward, um, I always was just putting off like one day I'll have enough money, I'll better buy a bunch of land, then I'll start ranching. Like I don't have, I can't do it now because I've not saved up enough. Like all of us on the millennial who just can't clear the hurdle height, right? Like I started after I graduated college in 2013, no money, negative money, right? College debt, mm -hmm. like trying to get off the ground in a world where prices are running away from you. You don't have any money invested in assets. So you miss the asset inflation curve and the harder you work, the faster it runs away and you just can't get ahead of it. So, I mean, we built a small company doing contracting work from nothing, um, kind of working nights and weekends, building our customer base, so on and so forth. And even after I got invested in Bitcoin, okay, like now I'm, I've got this successful company that's four or five years old. I find Bitcoin. I'm getting financially free, thank God, thanks to the power of Bitcoin, as we all know and love. Um, but like now you got the opportunity cost of Bitcoin there too. And it's like, man, like, I don't necessarily want to flip this money into cattle and land yet because this is my first bull run. I joined 2019, right? It's yeah. like, I got to want to miss this chance. This is like, this is my key to freedom here. So I'm going to save up for a while. Maybe one day I'll be able to buy enough land once Bitcoin goes and I'll buy some cows. And as all this is happening, I just feel that pull, like this is pre-COVID too, of like, it is time to get sustainable. It is time to get food supply directly in your hands. I just don't know why. I can just feel that kind of call echoing, right? And as a part of that, like I was researching more about regenerative grazing. I was studying how all this stuff works. I was looking at different land and land prices, different areas, trying to figure out how I can make it happen. And it just didn't seem like it could work. So like, I'm kind of just sitting down and praying and meditating about it. Like, how in the world can this happen? I feel this being pulled on in my soul, but I just don't know how to get there. And lo and behold, we're doing a fencing quote for a lady who the city mowed down her exterior fencing along the ditch while they were cutting their city like areas on the ditch lines. Mm. So we're doing a insurance quote through the fencing company for her. And we get to talking and she's got this huge recreational horse farm with like 160-ish acres or so, and they got about 12 horses on the property. And she's got this problem where recreational horses does not count as agriculture. So for her, she's paying residential tax rates on all of this property, which is absurd. It's so much money for her. And she's been trying to lease out her land. She's like bemoaning this to me while we're putting together her estimates and stuff for her fence to get her sent off for her insurance claims. She's just bemoaning to me that everybody wants to come and like rent land from her to get her agricultural deduction back. She's got more land than they need for the horses by far. Wants to do cotton or soy and spray chemical stuff over land. And this is a community of older people who are just, they're all into natural stuff and they're just not keen on all that. She's like, man, I just can't find anybody who's willing to do this in a way that just works for us. And I was like, well, you know, like I've always dreamed about doing regenerative grazing. She's like, yeah. okay, what's going on? You know? And so at the end of that whole situation, what ended up happening is she's leasing me a bunch of acreage on her farm for a buck a year. What she gets in return and she doesn't have to manage any of this pasture. So before she was either having to pay somebody to mow or her mow herself, 
like dozens and dozens of acres of unused pasture and a lot of it had become scrubland because it just gotten behind and she couldn't keep up with it all um because there's just not enough horses they don't need that much land and on top of that now she gets her, her agricultural tax deduction back so she has this incentive where monetarily and just labor and work wise where it's beneficial to her for me to be doing this on her property which is why she's leased me that land for such a competitive rate mm -hmm. so now i'm set up with all this land it's like I've got like 28 acres of pasture that her pasture i'm starting with eight of which were fairly goodish um 20-ish or stuff that like within the first season or two is going to be pretty good i've got another section i'm managing for deer and like wildlife conservation using the cattle as a tool which you don't get as much grazing out of it, but you can still get some food value. It's about 30 acres and about 50-ish acres of woods that I'm kind of preferred to the silver pasture. Mm -hmm. And it's all a buck a year. So I've got this going, but I've still got the same dilemma, right? Where most of my cash flows is from this small business I built successfully. Um, I've got every penny I got coming in invested into Bitcoin plus some. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, as most of us do, right? Right. And and like, I don't want to necessarily deleverage that for cattle. I mean, I feel that call in my soul of like, you need sustainable food chain. You need animals. You need to learn how to restore land hands on and go from book knowledge, to actual real experience. Like it's time, it's time, it's time, it's time. It's just echoing, right? And so I'm like, okay, I got to be faithful to this. I got to be obedient to what I'm feeling here. But shit, dude, I don't want to sell my Bitcoin. So I'm sitting here thinking like, okay, well, I'm going to start with three or four cows. I'm not really going to make any money at all, but I'll get a chance to learn. Like, I guess that's worth it because the opportunity cost will stay in Bitcoin anyway. And while I'm talking about all this stuff out on Bitcoin Twitter, I get reached out to, to by a guy. He's a bit of a Bitcoin OG. He's also a wealthy Wall Street investor. He made most of his money in like distress credit rescuing. Uh -huh. um, he worked his way up in a company. He wasn't like big wig, but he did well in the company, building relationships with the guys who run it. And it's done quite well. Um, I mean, in addition to being an early Bitcoin, right? Which obviously helps. <laughs> yeah, very much so. And, um, and he was like, hey, I love what you're doing. I want to be a part of this. And right off the cuff, I actually told him no. I was <laughs> like, no, I don't want anybody involved in this project. I've built too many things to where I know how important alignment is. And this is not something that's ever going to make a lot of money at the time, I thought. I was yeah. like, this is for the sake of the animals. This is for the sake of sustainability. I'm going after really old heritage breed genetics because I think we need to do this for conservation reasons. Like that in itself is not going to necessarily lend to good business numbers either. Like, no, I don't want to try to find alignment here. I don't think it's possible. Yeah. Like, but out of, out of curiosity, like, tell me why. Why are you interested in being a part? He wrote this letter, dude. It was like we were brothers who just hadn't met each other yet. Really? Like a lot of us with the Bitcoiners are, you know, like it's yeah. like we meet each other. It's like, dude, like we're family. I'm so glad I finally know you. <laughs> and yep. so when we got to talk, I was like, okay, we got to do this. So we wrestled down the system where he bought the cows and I'm managing them. And we have a contract that's a cow share agreement. It's like a herd share where every generation of animals born, he gets a percentage of the animals and I get a percent of the animals. His profit as the investor is all measured in animal wealth, and it's just out of the percentage of the animals he gets that are born. Right. My operating costs 
and my salary as the rancher all come out of the percentage of animals that I get. Okay, so it's just this really slick little contract that is not a business agreement. It's not like you're talking about equity in the company and cash flows and operating costs or any of this complicated business agreement type stuff. It's yeah. literally just splitting up animals that are born. It's just a co-op. Mm-hmm. It's literally just a cooperative. Um, and that's going really well, right? I mean, because the business model with this ranch is Greg Judy style. I mean, you got a low-cost lease, in my case, free, nearly. I mean, just to sign a contract, right? Yeah. Which is not unusual for anybody listening. Greg Judy does this, like, out in the Midwest. This is – there's many, many different places to exploit where you have opportunities like that, which we'll probably talk about as we get into the podcast further. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got these low-cost lease. We've got animal genetics that are low input capable animals that can thrive on neglect and just rough forage. Um, I, in particular, like, let me step back a little bit. Um, Nunya knows this, but like modern cows can't survive on just forage. They've been bred to gain weight fast with high energy inputs. Modern beef industry feeds them all sorts of bullshit. I mean, it's not uncommon like, um, like Bitcoin and cows and I were talking about when we did that cattle call that a couple of Bitcoiners listened into. He's seen them like get skittles that are miscolored or aren't perfectly shaped. And so they're the rejects from like candy processing industries fed to cattle. Holy same shit. with sprinkles. Yeah, same with like ice cream sprinkles. Um, like these are all things that are very common in the feedlot industry. It's the only way they can hit their margins with these cows. Oh, it's God. just cheaper inputs, right? So it's like, I, I, I know what your things, none of you information coding in our food from the environment. You imagine oh. what feed them Skittles and Sprinkles does to the information coded in the food. <laughs> Jesus, the food dot, the food dye alone is making my mind cringe. Yeah, it's bad. It's bad. So like we, we have a highly regulated beef industry that extracts all the profit to these large centralized processors which has been created by the lobby groups just because of all the legislation. We asked the question in ranching today of daily weight gain per cow, and that's what we seek with just all of our efforts, which is the absolute wrong freaking question. It leads to these large frame-sized animals, animals that can consume all this junk and stay alive. It's just the wrong question. Because you're sacrificing like good mothering traits and fertility, you're sacrificing good rugged health, you're sacrificing like uh, just longevity and gut size to be able to eat rougher forage. Like they're just not really cows anymore. They're like these robots that you can shove into them junk industrial offputs to gain weight as fast as possible. It's like their laboratory equipment, right? Garbage disposals. Pretty much. Pretty much. Um. So, like, that was one of the first problems that needs solving. And in the regenerative grazing movement, like Greg, Judy, and all these guys, there's been a lot of people who worked on this where they've gone out, they got, like, the South Pole breeds, an example of that. Do you know about South Pole, Nunya? No. Okay, so the South Pole breed, they went and got some of the best examples of modern meat cows. So, Angus, Hereford, um, Barzona, Senapole, I think, are the main four they started with. Mm-hmm. They selected almost solely for good mothering ability and fertility, where if an animal didn't calve well every single year with no difficulty, they'd cull it. Right. And they wanted animals you could throw into just forage and that they do well. 
And so they just let them get selected kind of land race style through environmental pressure. And as it happened, their frame size decreased a little bit and all these other really cool, good, rugged, healthy traits came back and the gut size came back, which is really interesting. When you select for fertility and longevity, all these other beneficial traits come with it. It's like nature knows, right? Right. Like, so, like some of your healthiest animals actually are animals that get like abandoned on an island. So these uh, like island populations of isolated animal groups that have heavy environmental pressure. And then the ones that can't cut it just kind of die off and the ones right. that survive make it. They end up with the strongest gene pools because what's happening is the environmental pressure of nature is just removing the bottom weakest of the average over and over and over and over. And so the average strength of the herd is just continuously going up over time rather than our modern cow we tend to try to select what we think are the best and breed for that but we always have blind spots of things that are showing up that we didn't account for right finding the weakest is pretty easy and that's what nature does what i think good breeders should do too is remove the obvious weak and let the average improve in a low time preference thing as the herd as a whole Versus trying to have these reductionist changes of selecting for the best where we have blind spots of things we don't know about, right? That's a whole nother rabbit hole. Right. (laughs) So anyways, there's guys working on that and they're doing a really good job. And so in order to have cows that can thrive in a low input system, like what Greg Judy uses, like what I'm using, where you're not feeding grain, they're just eating on forage. You're trying to keep your cost under control for medical care, like anti-parasites and vaccines, preferably using none of it if possible. Um, And they advanced a lot of that and did a really good job. Our first principles, we want max resilience possible in the end of the world type scenario. I mean, say like Bill Gates is threatened to spray the atmosphere to change like the climate, because he's worried about climate change, which is all bullshit. So like you got these drastic things that happen in the world. Their cows that they've bred in a lot of the regenerative grazing movement are very solid animals. They're good on just forage. They thrive on neglect. They gain weight pretty well, produce high quality meat. They don't require very many inputs at all. But they've been selected largely from modern cows. So their gene pool was fairly narrow, even though they bred for the right first principles. What we did is we went the complete opposite direction. We said, okay, Let's go as far back in history as we can go to get the most ancient bloodlines I can find of animals that have this rugged toughness in them that we want. And now we have this really, really broad genetic adaptable base. So no matter what happens in the world, we have animals that can cope with it and do well. Mm-hmm. Or well, at, least they're, at least their next generation born into it would be able to cope well. The animal itself undergoing the stress is if it's a massive climate change or it's a massive something disastrous happens, the adult animal will probably die. But if it has offspring in that adversarial environment, there's <clears throat> genetic information that can come to light and, exactly. and prosper in that new, in that new era within one or two generations. That's what I love about ev- uh, evolution. When you really apply it, this is applied evolution. Exactly. So I actually went, and I found these nearly endangered breed animals. I mean, at one point, there was only a couple hundred left in the whole world. Oh, They're yes. called tiny ones. They are one of the two original breeds, two-ish, that was brought to the U.S. during original South. They're small woods and brush cows from Spain that were truly selected, but had just come with the settlers, be released into the woods. They'd breed on their own. They'd be able to just 
thrive on any rough, rugged forage because the settlers back then didn't really know what the new world was like, was like, right? Right. So even if like the whole village dies off, these cows can survive. The next ship arrives, they know there's still food there because there's cows off in the woods. So even if the new world doesn't have any, like what we know now know is the U.S. was just, or North America at the time, there was no U.S., had all sorts of deer and elk and bison and such, but they didn't know what kind of food would be here. So they brought these cows with them. Okay. And then just land race. So land race meaning selected by environmental pressure rather than intentional human intervention. These cows in North America, just the healthiest ones survived in rough conditions to the herds we have today. So I went back and found a farm that's original homestead property down in Mississippi from like, I think the early 1800s. It's been in the same family since the original settlement. They never sold it. So the, the guy who runs the property today is like the great, great, whatever grandchild of the people that originally developed this property from original, like settlers yeah. come along on wagons, really cool place. Um, when I went to visit to purchase the cows, I actually slept in the barn loft that he's been building. Uh-huh. The barn loft, this is a little side note, but you'll like this one. Um, the barn loft is built out of lumber that his grandfather harvested during a storm that knocked out a bunch of trees on the property 40 years ago. And he stored them in the lake on the property because he didn't need them. He said, one of my grandchildren will use this as their inheritance. So when the storm did it, he harvested all the lumber, stored it in the lake to age the lumber. And as they've needed it as a family, they go pull a log out, mill it, and use it to build new things on the property. That barn is the same barn that was original well on the property in the 1800s. It got knocked down by Katrina, I think. And uh-huh. they kind of just were able to piece it back together and put it on stilts and re- kind of rebuild it. Um, and then he's using this lumber to put a loft. And that's where I slept, was in that loft in the barn with the oh, cow underneath of me. It was so cool, dude. That's awesome. Yeah, water waterlogged lumber <clears throat> is a... Actually, that's a big deal, man. In the North, uh, Pacific Northwest, they're still pulling shit out that's like 100 years old. You know, out oh, it's of lake. beautiful. Yeah, it's it beautiful. Got, it is. It's gorgeous. What? And you would think it's like, ooh, this is has lost. It, it can't possibly. It's got to be a sponge, and it's got to be all rotten. And it's like, no, dude, this is a great. This is actually like a, if you can store whole logs, like not even not milled yet bark on everything and store it in water. It's such a low oxygen environment that nothing really wants to eat it. And the only thing that can really eat wood is fungus and most, and, air. and, it's, and it needs air and neither are really present in water. It's actually a perfect place to store this shit, man. And they knew. So, so that, that farm was so cool, dude. So they had the same genetic lineage of sheep, horses, cattle, and cur dogs that was original to the homestead way, 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 way back. So so these cows, man, I mean, they're like, they've got bloodline ties all the way back to these original cows that came over on boats. Um, So, I mean, like my bull, he came out of the DeSoto National Forest Group, which is just some really old bloodlines that was just running out the woods. Like, he was actually used to develop the replacement heifers for the conservation herd. Like I've got some really good genetics I found. So, so point being, these animals give us deep resilience. Deep resilience in the low input model of them not really needing medical care. Um, deep resilience if they can eat stuff on even really rough land. I mean, you can throw them in the woods and just in the scrubbiest of forage and they're okay. Like even as late as the 1950s, these tiny woods, there's like stories of them interviewing some of the old ranchers that kept them. 
And uh, this was when cattle was being really like modernized and everybody was starting to go towards these like the Angus breeds and starting to use these different principles of giving them like grain inputs and feeding them like um, anti-parasites or all the sorts of new stuff they're doing. And they were interviewing these old Piney Woods farmers. They weren't called Piney Woods then. They were just called woods or brush cows by the farmers that kept them. The Piney Woods is a conservationist name. I got at it later. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were like, so what do you guys do with these cows during the winter? They're like, what do you mean? They're like, what do you do with them? How do you feed them? They're like, we don't feed our cows. We don't have money for that. We're all just poor Southern farmers. Like, well, what do you do? Like, oh, we just, we just open up and let them go out into the woods. Like, we'll keep one or two of the, like, of around that we need for, like, milk or something. And we'll feed them through the winter, but the rest of them just run wild. They find whatever they need out in the scrublands that nobody owns. Like, what, you don't feed them anything? Like, no. The ones that survive are the ones that come back, and they're, they're the ones that stay in the herd for next year. And they're like, the ones, about- and they're the ones that can do that again. Over that's yeah. the that's where you're getting back to to that definition of land race, which I think is important. Is that the cows that were able to find enough calories? in wild forage at those temperatures at that time of of year are the ones that are going to be able to have their offspring and their offspring are going to have a much better chance to be able to do the exact same thing that mama was able to do the year before. And the more and more that you get that going on, the more and more cows actually come home and the less and less, you know, die, fall over and, and rot out in the field. And, and this, You've used it a couple of times, but the, the, I want like, it, it, I, I will probably forget. Hopefully you won't forget, but when we finish this part of the discussion, I want to come back to when you say animal wealth, because there's, that's a, that's a big statement. And it's a really yeah. important statement for people to understand what the hell wealth really was 2000, 3000, 4000, 5000 years ago, because it is not the wealth that we think of today. So, so I didn't want to interrupt you, but I, I, I want to be able to remember to come back to what animal wealth actually means. So yeah, continue. That fits in great here. I mean, cause animal wealth is more than just numbers. Animal wealth is the ancestral memory of all the generations of stewardship that's been invested to create this animal to be what it is today. And that's something that must happen, not just over years, but decades, not just over decades, but centuries, you know, like, and that kind of real wealth is solving for the correct first principles of wisdom too. Like you think about our Angus, I mean, you may have a moderate herd of a hundred Angus, but if you put them on like Kentucky 31 and you don't feed them a much like grain inputs, the whole herd dies. Like, okay, great. You had a hundred cows, but how much real animal wealth of true value accrued over history do you really have here? Because your breeders selected for all these things that only work in a modernized world with all these additional inputs, right? Like we want animal wealth measured by low time preference resilience, kind of with a Bitcoiner mindset, mm-hmm. which is so much more than just how many cows do you have? It's what's the substance and essence of these cows? What makes them who they are? So like you think about these cows that were run wild in the woods over the winter, these cows are also incredibly fertile. I mean, they're the kind of cows that are capable of breeding back during those conditions. So you got nature selecting for like, which cows can raise another generation under, under, under utter neglect in the worst of conditions. Um, like, the, like these piney woods, one of the lines is the Barnes line. And it came from this like little township 
where everybody in the town had cows, but not a single person in the town had land. The town was on woodsy swamps. Like all these guys had, they had salt blocks in their backyards. Whenever somebody needed any meat, they'd just go wrangle a cow when it was licking a salt block and, and then they'd butcher it. So like they would just every so often brand them, whichever ones came to their property, and they all counted those as their cows, but they all just ran loose in the swamps in the woods. And I don't know how much a lot of you guys know about animals, but swamp, humid swamp lands are brutal. Because not only do you have that humidity, the heat, the insect and bug pressure, but you have this huge parasite load because all that muggy, wet, swampy soil, you have that huge level of just the parasites getting fed back into the animals again. So these cows that can survive and thrive in those conditions are the toughest of the toughest cows. You take those same cows that can handle that humid, swampy heat and you put them in the desert and they just get even better. Because now they got less parasite pressure, less bug pressure. I mean, now it's just, okay, can I survive on limited forage? Well, yeah, we already know they can do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so animal wealth, right? That's all baked into these cows. I mean, there's even places where they interviewed some of these old farmers. Like, hey, do you guys give these guys any antiparasites? Do you do any vaccinations? They're like, dude, we're poor old farmers. We keep these poor old cows poor old cows, cows. right this is the yeah. best animal wealth you could possibly imagine because of how durable these animals are they think of them like they're just little like just trailer trash to use like a modern modern kind of analogy but really this is some of the most incredible genetics you could ever dream of it's like island genetics right and um they're like no we can't afford any of that stuff we don't use any of it these cows have to survive without it because we can't we can't use it we just can't afford to put it in our budgets so these cows are just incredibly tough. So from an investment standpoint with these investors helping me get set up doing this operation, they now have animal wealth that is a hard asset that they've invested in my range, right? So being a hard asset, it's inflation secured. These animals are very separated from the whims of your fiat marketplace chasing all these fads. Because it's like like weird meat markets. I don't know how much you know about this stuff either, none yet. But like black typically sells at a premium. Yes. Like um, different breeds sell at a different premium, which is all for just stupid reasons. Um, like Angus does. But I mean, Angus, a lot of modern Angus all ties back to a single genetics from one of these bulls that they use to AI, like nearly all of them. Yeah. And he is a carrier for a gene that causes what's called curvy calf which is essentially like a calf born without a functioning spine. Oh, and that's so, like spina bifida, man. Yep. So Angus, they have this huge issue now where they've had to test for this to try to get this out of the genetics. They've done well with it to where it's not near as bad of a problem as it was when it first started coming to the surface. So like what is causing this crisis? And it tracked all back to like we were talking about, this prime bull they selected because of these certain traits oh where they, God. in a reductionist mindset, thinking this is the best of the best bred it into everything oh. like nature eliminating the lowest right to increase the average of the whole are you trying to chase fast reductionist gains are you going after a long time preference benefit of the whole was the average improves over time and that's just that's the mentality difference right yeah so angus sells at a premium but angus has these genetics problems and stuff as well um, which a lot of that, they've done really good work at rooting all that out. I'm not trying to hammer on the Angus guys. I'm just kind of trying to 
illustrate the different mindsets of what, what to bring to this when you're trying to raise animals. Um, so, so these investors have these deep, resilient animals now. So they're completely decoupled from the whole market. So you got supply, break, supply chain breakdown. So you can't get medical stuff from China. So you can't do your vaccines or you can't get any anti-parasites. Let's say like Bill Gates buys up all the good farmland so you can't get good land. It doesn't matter. These animals can be thrown in the roughest conditions. They can have absolute utter neglect, zero medical care, and you've got a pretty safe store of value. So now, not only are they having a good hard asset, but this hard asset is also real yielding because they spit off another cow every year, right? Right. So with these cattle contracts, not only do they have sustainable meat supply for their family, so as the world's getting crazier and supply chains break down, the anti-meat movement and all this, they could take some of those investments and sell those animals or sell that meat and have cash flows off these investments. And the position also has some convexity to it because the way I wrote my contracts, which they can all be negotiated between the rancher and the investor to be whatever you want as we're building this whole organization. But the way I wrote it with my investor, he actually even gets some breeding animals that are poor. So his underlying position actually increases too. So not only is it like a dividend yielding position of a hard asset that provides sustainable meat income for his family and some cash flows, it also has yields on actually growing the underlying and increasing the wealth of animal wealth at the same time. So you can imagine how stoked he was about that. Because, I mean, where else is he going to put his money, right? I mean, we as Bitcoiners know this. Right. Everything is a bubble. Freaking everything. I mean, like, everything besides Bitcoin. So it's like, he's an OG. He told me this. I mean, I, I don't know if I believe him. But he said, like, there's a point where, like, you have enough Bitcoin. Uh -huh. Where, like, his belief about the risk to Bitcoin for, like, the unknown unknowns, right? Something might happen that we just nobody really knew about like some sort of fall somewhere or something happens, which we all know is super, super, super minimal, but there's always that small risk, right? right? He says, I have enough that I think I'm balanced with that. What I care about now is when I have all this money, somebody has to be producing somewhere. I need something to buy with this money. I'd rather secure the real goods that I need for later. So I want to diversify. There's nothing better to diversify than this. These animals, real estate investment, if we got the carry cost down because it'd be an agriculture, and then maybe some of the equipment and type stuff needed to kind of do this at a more scale of us buying more properties, right? Right. Ever since we started doing this, his other buddies that are wealthy have been hammering on his door trying to get to me, like, give, call Joel, we want, we want more animals. Like, we want cattle contracts too. These are great. Like, make more of these. Like, guys, we, we don't have any more cows. <laughs> and we don't want to sell the ones we have because we like these just like you guys do, right? Right. So, as all this is happening, we've got all Bitcoin Twitter watching, you know, we've, we've all been kind of enjoying this journey together, seeing the cows get delivered, all the photos of posting, the new calf got born a couple weeks ago. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Got in the other ear, a bunch of ranchers talking to me, like, how in the world did you build this thing? I want to start homesteading. I want to start ranching. Can you help me figure out how to do this too? Like, teach me how to do this holistic grazing stuff. Like, help me find the right animals. Help me kind of fund my farm. So, I've got investors in one year saying, get me more cattle contracts. And people in the other year saying, help me start ranching. And I'm like, hmm, you know, like, these people should talk to each other. Yeah. <clears throat> 
So as all this is happening, the investment group starts talking to me about as the world's getting crazier with COVID, they're like, man, I really wish I had fallback properties where like I could get away from the city as things get crazy if I need to. But the problem is like, I'm really good at what I do and I'm working in my field. And as the world's getting more chaotic, it's also opportunity, right? And I'm trying to create where I am, the things that are needed for the next chapter. But like, I feel like I'm failing my family because I don't have safety of food supply or like a safe place for them to fall back to if things get really crazy. Like I need both and I can't do both on my own. Could we set up a land trust where we buy up a bunch of land and either you or somebody you know goes out and stewards the property for us. You run cows on it, regenerate it. That way the soil's getting more and more fertile. Um, and then like we can use that as the preparation work for getting that place designed as a small place for our community to fall back to as a family if we need it. Like I was like, okay, like what would you guys want in return for that? Or like, well, I mean like your work is the return. Like the land improves. Like even if we don't go back and like actually move to these properties, we could flip the real estate investment for a multiple orders of magnitude gain because you guys help the property so much. Like what if we just like, sliced off an acre or two for you guys to use as your homestead that way you could live your dream of kind of gardening and doing all that stuff and you donate your like five to six hours a week moving the cattle around the hundreds of acres of property as a whole and like we just call that a deal like trade labor for your lease rate for your lease to own on your little couple acres you buy from us and i'm like shoot like you guys want to provide homestead properties for homesteaders just simply for labor to do what they dream of doing anyway in the first place? They're like, yeah, well, this is fucking great. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we got to talking like, okay, like this thing looks like it scales. Like we're doing proof of concept on my farm. It's working really well. I'm talking to all these homesteaders and talking to all these investors. We know the model works with the low cost leases because Greg Judy has been doing it for a long time too. Um, and we're like, okay, well, we should start building a landing page and a website and kind of start getting the sign-up process up. We'll start matchmaking these people and we'll open source the contracts and the toolkit for how to do the legal stuff on the land trusts and we'll start getting this going. And like, so we're thinking like a six-month time frame, right? And a week later is when that anti-Bill Gates tweet I tweeted out on Twitter just popped. Do you remember uh, that one? Yes, I do. One? Oh, yeah. I was, I was part one, of that one. <clears throat> that one went, man. And it was like, oh, shit, we need to have this thing prepared to scale like yesterday. So it's been really cool. I mean, I've had so many people reach out to me. And I mean, I, I had a family investment office call me who owns like 800 acres, 400 acres of prime land and 400 acres of like just burned out industrial farmland that doesn't grow anything anymore. Yeah. And they were like, hey, like we have a macro thesis that's very much like you guys where we believe like we're in a fourth turning and like a like monetary epoch shift or whatever. And they're like, we, we believe that one of the things we need to be diversified into is regenerative agriculture. So we've been buying up a bunch of land. He's like, but our problem is we're not experts in regenerative agriculture and we've been completely incapable of either finding or training people that can do this. Everybody we have managing our land is doing it just with normal modern principles. And it's not, it doesn't give us what we want because now we're still tied to like, like, like modern cattle ranchers, right? If you've got a supply chain breakdown of your medical inputs for your cattle or like your price changes by 30, 40, 50%, some of that's enough to put a lot of modern ranchers out of business. 
Oh, yeah. It's just it doesn't take that much volatility because they're so tied to all those markets. So the investment office, like, like this is this is our thing we need solved. Like, can you help us? And I'm still sitting here thinking, like, I've got people asking if I can help them become land stewards. I've got investment offices asking if I could find land stewards. <laughs> right. And I've got my phone blowing up ever since that tweet with people, dozens of them, each different side of it. I mean, that's just my little small Twitter feed, right? It's like you send out this little radar ping and alpha my small number of followers, we get that amount of return. It's like, shit, dude, like we're on something that resonates, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes, you are. Absolutely, man. <clears throat> oh, so one of the things that's really blown my mind about this, actually, do you got any questions? Have I explained everything well so far? Yeah, th there's only, there's only one issue and you probably know what it is. And I'm sure that you've, I'm sure that you've looked into it, <clears throat> but I know that there's, a couple of people out there that are listening right now that are that about five minutes ago were screaming, how does this not fail the Howey test? How is it that you've got an investment vehicle that could provide a product that somehow or another suggests profit at the hand, <clears throat> excuse me, at the hands of a third party? Because if any of, if, if all those are true, then you've got an unregistered security on your hand. Have you looked into how this doesn't fit that and and under what uh, aspects that you can guard against something like this because again <clears throat> excuse me again just like with centralized cattle operations forming around this the centralized usda inspected approved slaughterhouses that forces out people from being able to do what we're talking about so you can't do that and now you've got a situation with the stuff like the Howey test that was supposed to protect people against scams, but it reinforces that model. So have you looked at that? Can you break that or can you figure out a way to uh, have that not be the issue with failing the Howey test and having this whole thing get scuttled because of an unregistered security? Because I want to see this go. But if it, th that's my problem here is that it's like, you goddamn people refuse to let us do anything. And this is why the world is the way it is. Can't we just do this? Can't we have a guy who says, I got an investor here. I got a guy that wants to do this shit here. We put them together under contract. And then the U.S. government steps in and says, no, you can't even do that shit, bro. You get, I'll send your ass to jail. So I want to be wrong. I really want, I really want this not to be the Howey test. So I'm not crawling into your ass about it, like from that direction, but it's got to be talked about. Yep. So the way this shakes out is this is animal boarding. We're okay. just boarding animals for the investors. So it's more like a co-op. This is being built on the legal precedence of cow shares or herd share agreements. Okay. Are you familiar with the raw milk movement in the kind of health world at all? Yes, absolutely. You, can sell, you, you, can't, you can't sell it because it's illegal, but you can sell it if you're going to label it as cat food. Well, no, not only that, a lot of states with the legislation, what we're doing, like what I do in Virginia, is I own a cow at a local farm. They care for my cow. I pay a maintenance cost from the feed my cow. And then I get the products from my cow, which is the raw milk. Mm -hmm. So it's a cooperative herd share where they're farming my cow for me. They're just essentially boarding it. I'm paying boarding fees. Mm -hmm. 
So what we're doing with our legal team is we're piggybacking on those precedents. We're still in the process of doing all the legal research. We're probably going to give out approval for this model on a state-by-state -state basis because those rules are per state. They're not a national rule set. Mm -hmm. um, and then go live in different states one at a time. Um, we're even planning on open sourcing that some. Um, I want to go down a rabbit hole there. One thing that this project is really blowing my mind about. So I've, I've got a network of guys that are entrepreneurs and all sorts of different stuff like high tech R and D and like small business world of just people, hands on craftsmen and tradesmen. And I've, I've been around a lot of different projects. I'm so used to collaborating with people that have a fiat mindset. I'm sure talking to mostly Bitcoiners here, I don't have to explain what that means. Right. They're people that don't think goal oriented. They don't communicate with precision. They're like, they're always just solving for the wrong stuff. You just can't get a team together to focus. This project has shown me just how low friction the world is when you have people that actually think with the correct worldview. Working with these Bitcoiners that all just showed up, like this is one of my dreams, I'm here to help. What do I do to be a part of this project? Has been freaking incredible. It's been one of the most humbling experiences of my life. I mean, I have more than one lawyer that has just showed up of like, I dreamed about this, let me be a part. <laughs> and so I've got a legal team that's awesome. These guys are high caliber. Um, and that's been true of everything. I've had software guys reach out who want to help with some of the different problems I've needed solving. I've had business consultants and startup guys reach out who are really good at helping with the messaging and stuff we're building as far as the landing page. Um, it's just been freaking incredible. So we have a really good team that really just coalesced around this thing because we believe in it. But we're probably going to need some help with that very question. What we're going to do is we're starting the research on a few of the key areas first. Like I'm in Virginia. We're looking probably New York next because we got some ranchers there we're actively talking to. Um, Wyoming, obviously, because they got some really lucrative cattle laws. That would be a good another place to start. But what we're going to do is we're going to release the list of the states where we still need help doing all the legal research as we take this thing live. Mm -hmm. So we'll have states where signups are live. You can kind of pre-sign up in other states, but we won't really go through the interview matchmaking process till we finish the legal due diligence there. Right. And we'll go after just one at a time, kind of making it go live in each state. And if you're either a lawyer or you've got experience in those states, you can forward information to our legal team to help us. And we'll chug through getting the verbiage and then like all the precedents set up for defending this thing where we can run this as animal boarding co co cooperative organizations um in every state around the country is going to eventually be the goal uh -huh. okay um yeah. have you any like do you know anything about what's going on in texas yet because you know <laughs> it's not like i don't want to start doing this so what about what's going on in Texas? Oh, I, well, I meant like, have you looked into like, I, I guess what I'm, I guess what the question is, when Texas? When Texas. I will talk to my team and see where we can put that on the list. I got a couple okay. people in Texas talking to me. Yeah, this, this has been so cool, man. We've got people all over the country talking to us. I mean, I've even got allies all around the, all around the country. I've got a, like a, um, a sociologist who's also into like small scale localism and community building down mm -hmm. in South America, who's also into regenerative grazing as a part of her like localism type vibe, who's kind of collaborating with me on building some of the education part of this platform. 
I've got people in like Europe working on some of the software stuff. You want to help be a part of building some of the backbone that'll be used for kind of helping scale the project. It's like, it's been so cool how many different people all over the world are wanting to be a part of this. So do you, is the webpage ready? I mean, is it, can people really look at it? it? Okay. That should be live by the time you and I release this, depending upon if we could kind of drag our feet for a few days so I could finish the verbiage on the last section. Okay. We're, okay. We're really close. I'm thinking at least as long as, as at least as long as people, you know, even if you can't sign up, you can at least look at it and, and you know, have, have some information that, that pours out of it and, and says, this is what we're thinking. This is what it may look like, not investment advice and all that crap, but you know, like just something, you know, something to hold on to because, you know, we're, you know, we talked about it before, you know, much earlier was that there's, I'm getting so many Bitcoiners and they're not talking, they're not talking directly to me. I'm just like seeing their feeds and I see farm, ranch, you know, agriculture, the importance of animals, the importance of food, the importance of nutrition, and you're not going to get this in the supermarket. And it all just seems to be like, going down another black hole, you know, and, and what's so funny is that I came, when I came into Bitcoin, I came out of that and now I'm going right back into it. And it's, <laughs> it, it's almost like, like, like two suns are orbiting each other in this dance and they're getting closer and closer and closer together as each orbital, you know, as each orbital goes round, it's like, the Bitcoin mindset and the regenerative agricultural, you know, mindset, and that includes permaculture and aquaculture and, you know, uh, even, even hydroponics, cause it can be, it can be done in a, in a, you know, it can't be done regeneratively because you're not really regenerating anything. Right. But I guess you, I guess you could with, with waste materials, but the point being is that you got these two universes that are really close to each other. You know, they're, they're almost caught in, in each other's orbital path. And if you've got a shit ton of value in transferable money around a shit ton of value in animal wealth and land wealth and, and like resilience in, in that well, land and in those animals. Around, around capacity for developing land wealth because we have the skill to regenerate stuff. Right. And, and that gets me into, in, you know, and that gets me into this one is that, I thought about this a lot, and then I was thinking about it again last night as I was reading uh, Holistic Management, and, and I think we mentioned it before, is that, you know, f commodity farms as they are right now with their super massive acreages are on the precipice, I believe. Now, I can't prove it. I don't have the data to back it, but I live out, I've lived in West Texas my entire life, everywhere from the Permian Basin all the way up to, you know, the, the Texas Panhandle and Lubbock in between. And this is some of the most degraded land because of chemical inputs. It's like a chemistry set out there, man. You know, yep. and at one point or another, that land's not going to be able to take much more chemistry and the whole thing's going to collapse. And at that point, you're going to have farm auctions out of the ass at dirt cheap prices because that's all it's going to be worth is dirt. There's no soil left. It's not soiled now. That's what's so sick about it. So yep. at one point or another, you're going to have a situation where a whole ton of land just comes on the market for super cheap prices. And there's an entire program that says we can put this back into production in two years. Holy crap. Faster. 
Uh, yeah. See, it, it like it all of a sudden it becomes like a protein output situation. You know, yep. like, like with your cows, you know, like I, you know, it's not, it's not that I would rather have chickens than cows. I'm just that just see, I could put chickens in my backyard. So I'd know them, you know, I'd know their personality and what they do. And we talked about it on the phone once before is that if you put a bunch of cows in a paddock and you keep them there for two, three days and they manure in the urine and then you move them off and then they don't come back. Okay. Well, that seems, you know, I could see somebody going, God, you have to wait a whole, a whole season or a, a half a season. No, actually you don't. In fact, it'd be better to run a whole bunch of poundage of chicken on that manured and urined land about three days after the cows move off. And the question becomes why three days fly larval stage. Yep. And what's beautiful about this is that as they pick all the maggots off of the dung, they do two things, right? They kill the flies before they're even born. So your cattle don't have to go through fly strike and have to do that stress, which is a very stressful situation depending on the fly pressure. There is no fly pressure because the chickens ate them all. And second, to get to all those little larvae, they got to tear all the bullshit apart. Literal, you know, the, the literal cow shit. And they spread it all over the place. So there's now there's no flies. And now all the manure is spread and scratched in. So it's, it's got contact, uh, contact surface area with the soil so that it can interface with the soil a lot easier. And then depending on the chicken operation, either eggs <clears throat> or broilers. And even if, you're doing, if, even if you're doing just eggs, you can harvest hens. They make great hen stock. The meat's tough. It's tasty, but it's really, really tough. But hen stock... Yeah, hen stock, and then take the car the carcass after it's been turned into hen stock, dog food, cat food that's really high quality. Well, it's not even bad if you eat it on your own. If you stew it, if you slow cook it, it tenderizes it. They're that, super flavorful. Yeah, that that's true. But see, now I've got a second yield of product, and yep. it did, and and it actually helped the land again in a different way. And I've heard about yep. people dragging quail three days after the chickens get off of it. Oh, why do they do that? It, they get all the rest of the stuff because they're, they're smaller birds. The problem is managing quail in a, in a, in a run type situation is a little bit different than, you know, chicken tractors. Yep. People are kind of working on it. So it's, it's more viable to not do that, but it can be done. So all of a sudden that same paddock is, you know, propagating this poundage of meat and then another poundage of a different kind of meat. And if you do it on a third scale, another poundage of, of a third type of meat and the land actually never, it's not like you kept the cows on for nine straight days. You take the cows off three days later, you put chickens on three days later, you take the chickens off because they get to move to the other. And this lead, this leader follower model is something that really fascinates the crap out of me because the, the amount of phosphorus that is in bird poop is just amazing. And it's free. It's, it's, it's plant available, which is unlike what you get when you put phosphate, you know, superphosphate or phosphate rock on the chemistry set that I got outside my door. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's really cool too, because now you've got the grazers match the life cycle of the grass and then the chickens are allowing you to get more biological and actual like fertilization of animal impact on the property, but without 
hurting the grass recovery cycle because they're not going to clip the grass for that second bite like the cows would have. And yeah. you get all the omega-3s from the fly larva, so you got high-quality chicken food. Um, the thing with chickens, in my opinion, is they're a little bit higher input model because typically you have to import all farm grain feed and stuff. Yes. Versus cows, you get this deep resilience for the zombie apocalypse type investment network that I need, which is why they're kind of the backbone. Right. Because the cows, all I need is sunshine and rain, right? Right. But, I mean, if you can sustain kind of farm sales, you're importing fertility to regenerate your land really quickly because of bringing in all farm feed. So even if you're breaking even on your meat or your eggs, it's kind of worth it because you're building your pasture so quickly, which benefits your larger operation. Yeah, it's just a, it's just a spreadsheet function. You know, the, the numbers either work or they don't. It Most from what I've seen, most of the time it actually works. But again, it's a management issue. You know, it's, well, it's like often, often the chickens are a loss leader too, which yeah. works for the farm as a business. I and mean, yeah. you don't really mind doing it once you're up and going because it draws in, like your eggs draw in so many customers. They build your network for you. Right, right. Uh, so is there is there anything else? Because, I mean, this is, I love hearing about this stuff. And, you know, I didn't, you know, we've talked about it before, but yet somehow or another, it's like, it's like Bitcoin. You need to be slapped in the face by about three or four times before, I, you know, <laughs> you figure out, you know, exactly what it is that you're doing. And I'm, I'm like super excited about this, which again, you know, win Texas. Um, is there any, do you got anything else before we, before we leave? Cause we've been shit, we've been recording for a while, man. <laughs> yeah. I got a few other things I definitely like to cover. We can, we can definitely do a series of stuff as well. I, oh, I get the that would be, and I could talk for a lot. I, mean, that would could, be, I could start jumping on with you weekly. We could cover all sorts of different topics. You know, like a random, a random teaser for you. We were yeah. bumping into this just in another conversation. You know that they used to do like, this was like pre-vaccination type stuff. They were injecting cow's udders with different types of contaminants, like a virus or bacteria to make the cows manufacture antibodies and using that to create health for people. Yeah. Like more holistic type medical care. I mean, there's all sorts of rabbit holes. I think you and I both would love. We could talk every week for hours, dude. Yeah. If, if you, let's, We'll let's talk about doing that because I've been wanting to have like a returning, like a recurring theme that comes up or, you know, a, a recurring person or like something. And this is, this sounds like, this sounds like it because when, you know, when you have a podcast, you know, interview and, and, and the guy comes on and we talk about, you know, cows in Virginia, you know, and, and contracts and, and the way we do that, we're doing what we're pulling like one hair off the ass of a woolly mammoth and we're not look, you know we, the the amount of stuff that we can talk about is so immense because we're re it's like a reawakening we're rediscovering what people 500 years ago was that was just the way shit was you know and a lot it had just entered into my head in fact um there was <clears throat> i've seen over the years of my life a whole lot of movies and in those movies they always talk about the dust bowl and these movies came out in the 40s and you know the 50s and like you know you got well giant was about an oil you know oil man but there was still some some farming issues in there and then you got grapes of wrath as a book that was remade and yeah basically the messaging was don't farm don't do it like, you know, these movies have these scenes of these just like Martian landscapes of just 
rock and dirt and the, you know, the banker coming up to repossess the house. And it was almost as if now I look at it and I go, you know, tinfoil hat my ass, but was this messaging? You know, is it possible that they wanted to give a reason to scare the piss out of people? Because what I'm looking at when I look at Regen Ag, I'm looking at beautiful landscapes that look like parks. I'm looking at possibilities of having like an operation, you know, such as yourselves, where people would actually want to come out and have their wedding. Not exactly right by the cow paddock, but if you... Dude, my if, pastures don't snow at all. Well, I did camping with my buddy out there in the pasture with him. Sleeping yeah. in the middle of the very paddock, the cows are grazing under the pine trees. It was the most beautiful night of my life, dude. So, like, but, it's just gorgeous out there. Yeah, so, the, the, you know, this land is, they're all, it's all gorgeous. When it's put back together and it's fucking fixed the way it, before it got all broke, and there's trees and it's green and there's grass and there's pastures with little flowers, you know, you know, little Daisy May running around with a daisy in her hair. And it's like, holy shit, it's like, you know, freaking, you know, little house on the prairie. And all of that can come back. It's not impossible. It's like right there within our lifetimes, my lifetime. And yeah. that's, that's real farming. The yeah. Dust Bowl is not farming. Yeah. That's mechanized technology, like technology industry without respecting the underlying principles. Right. And I, I still think yeah. that... I still think that it was like those movies were made in such generation in, in at those times that it was almost as if they didn't want Americans to go farm. So they scared the piss out of them. And then you got sustainability. Yeah. And then you got butts like, cause we talked about this on the phone, but I want to mention it. You, know, you got the, what the fuck happened in 1971 website that talks about all these economic calamities that, that came out of the fact that Nixon took, took us off the gold standard. What that website doesn't say is that in that very same year was his secretary of agriculture, Mr. Butts, who stood up. Go big or go home. Go big or go home. And it destroyed the 40-acre family farm. And all of a sudden, it was like, it was almost as if, okay, not, it's like, well, okay, we're, we're going to do this to these guys. We're going to screw them. We got to make sure it sticks. How do we do that? It's like, well, first, we, we, we make sure that gold basically is detached from the dollar. It's like, yeah, is that enough? And then somebody in the back room said, no, they can't be resilient either. They have to be fully dependent. And how do we do that? We make sure that we control the mechanisms of, uh, of production of food. We got to scare the piss out of them. We got to make sure that they cannot farm. We got to make sure, you know, <laughs> it's bad. Yeah, it's like that Henry Kissinger quote. Um, I was going to try to pull it up for you. You'll love this one. Um, who controls the food supply controls the people. Who controls the energy can control whole continents. Who controls the money can control the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The farming and the, and the money and all this, it just all goes hand in hand. And we're finally, as Bitcoiners, kind of getting back to fixing all of it. Yeah, Bitcoin fixes this. So uh, where can people find you? Okay, so... I'm going to have the website up and running. If that's up and running when we release this, as I intend for it to be, signups are live. Even if we're not live in your state, go ahead and sign up. Um, when it's legal and we have that all squared away, I'll get in contact with the people who signed up desiring to do it in that state. So the website requests what state you're in and what state you're interested in. So approvals of when I get back with people will be based upon their interest to get doing it, being in a state where we've checked the legal boxes. Um, 
a few other things I wanted to cover real quick. Uh-huh. One of the magic keys that makes all this work is the low time preference between the investor and the rancher themselves. So with these cows doing a low input grazing system, the average management task on a week to week basis is literally just going out with the electric fencing to move the cows to the new grazing area. It's like 30 to 40 minutes to move the cows tops and you're moving them every two to three days. So three times a week or so tops, unless you want to be a little more intensive. So average weekly labor is five to six hours. That labor is the same amount of labor, whether you got 20 cows or 220 cows, the labor's fixed. So that's part of what makes it work. A lot of the people wanting to be a part of this are people that have remote work where they're happy to go and ranch an hour a morning here or there, five, six hours a week for the long time preference investment of having animal wealth as the animals are born. They don't need a lot of actual hourly salary in USD, right? They're mm-hmm. investing labor in this long savings and having animal wealth. Same for the investors. They're not looking for immediate return. They're okay with the long time preference animal wealth return as well. That ability to have the long time preference between the worker and the investor is what makes the magic of this system possible because now we're not accounting for short-term cash flows. We're all working together to create wealth of a long-term hard asset type variety through the fact that we can do this kind of on a part-time like basis. So that's important for the people signing up to be a part of this to know that like this ranching is not something you have to do full time. It's nowhere near. I mean, it's easy, easy, easy to do an hour here, an hour there as a part-time gig. Now, the goal would be for us to have multiple ranches where you could have one guy bouncing between an hour or two drive the different ranch properties at a single kind of geographic area. Mm-hmm. And then you can kind of run him as a full-time guy that's actually making pretty good money. But getting started off of this, we'll be looking for a lot of part-time type workers. Um, I think that covers the different stuff. There's so many different worlds I want to dive into, dude. Well, we're gonna, we're you're gonna come back. I mean, that that's this is gonna be a deal now. So you're you're gonna come back. Uh, but um, I I'm I'm like we're, I'm I'm actually worried that I'm about to run out of hard drive room, and I don't want it to crash the entire conversation, man. That's funny. <laughs> I'm yeah, literally so one thing I like to talk about when we jump back on. Um, the relationship between central baking stealing from the future and stealing from soil fertility, both being indicative of societal collapse. Yes. That's a whole nother rabbit hole. I'd love to go down. Yeah, we could, we can do, we could, oh God, there's so much stuff that we're going to be able to do on this one. I'm, I'm getting really excited about this, man. Um, let's cut it, make sure we save it. <laughs> yeah, let, let's do that. But b- before I do that, uh, your Twitter handle, make sure people know it. Bro. The website is untappedgrowth.com. We'll, I'll send you a link to it when we go live. Okay, absolutely. Now I'm going to go ahead and cut this off, so say goodbye to the people. Appreciate it, brother. Thanks for the chat. Untapped yeah, man. Off, man. So there it is, the interview with Untapped Growth. Going to have him on again. Uh, like you heard, we were talking about doing this maybe once a week. <clears throat> this week has kind of like gotten away from me on uh, in several different ways, but we're going to, I'm definitely going to have him on again as uh, uh, somebody to talk to about this stuff in on a recurring fashion, because like we talked about, there is an immense amount of things that we can do. And I, I get more and more excited about it every time I think about it, but this show has gone on too long. So I will see you on the other side. 
This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.